Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Gets Together podcast today with um, a very special topic, which basically is one of my favorite topics, uh, digital health. So I have to watch out that I'm not carried away in the intro to the episode. Uh, so can you please stop me after 85 minutes so that we have five minutes left for EET health? Uh, I'm very happy today to have um, on the episode um, two people from one of Europe's uh, most important initiatives, AT Health, um, Kurt Höller and Joy Kürtens. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Maybe I give a little bit of background why, I've, uh, why I love or why I like digital health. It's basically a topic uh, that I discovered Well, very early in my life, it's back in the 80s, and um, it consisted of three parts. So one is health, the other one is technology, and uh, the third part, in my opinion, is uh, business. And since the 80s, a lot, of, a lot has evolved. So one of the disruptive innovations that I got aware of um, was, let's say, in the 90s, the development of the internet and the mobile industry with technologies like, for example, Amazon, the, the online bookstore, or later on, the disruption of the music industry, entertainment industry by Apple with uh, the iTunes store. And um, I missed a little bit um, the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare sector, which didn't show much of traction in that area. Um, Until, in my opinion, uh, 2010, when I first perceived that slowly also the digital world was moving towards the pharmaceutical industry. And I realized uh, a stronger pull a um, couple of years ago, I think it was in 2013, 15, when the first startup companies approached me. I was working back then in uh, uh, drug development, uh, vaccine development, and um Some digital companies said, Christian, look, um, we have some innovative ideas. Um, can you help us to find investors? And I thought it should be an easy game because of it, uh, digital technology is disruptive by itself. Everybody should know that. So talking investors into investing, uh, such startup companies should be easy. But I was wrong. Actually, it wasn't so because on one hand, the pharmaceutical deep tech investors said, um, It's too much digital. And uh, on the other side, the digital investor said it's too much pharma. So we were basically in between. And But the nice thing is um, the following years, a lot developed. So new investment funds emerged. And one investor that I had the pleasure to talk with at the panel discussion in 2019 in the United States put it in a very... Uh, nice speech and said um, a Fitbit that was back in 2019 made a sleep study uh, which I looked up yesterday and they collected 60 billion data points and uh, this investor was a deep tech investor who is proficient in investing in Uh, drug development is that I mean basically we are happy when we conduct a clinical trial if we get a few hundreds to a few thousand data points and Fitbit got 60 billion. So just imagine what happens if uh, this digital revolution 
just takes on. Um, and since 2019, I lost a little bit track, so I'm very happy, uh, and I hope I end now the, uh, the opening words, uh, that uh, you both are here, and uh, let's give us, uh, me and the audience, a little bit of insight, what's going on in Europe, uh, what's hot in Europe, how did the industry evolve since 2019, and especially with special focus on the pandemic, uh, where is the industry heading in the future? Um, Kurt and Choi, maybe you also start a little bit with giving your background so that you frame the uh, uh, the podcast a bit and then uh, let's jump into AT Health and the digital revolution. Choi, would you like to start? Sure, I'd like to start. Um, I mean, first of all, I probably helped in collecting at least a million of those data points. Um, I have been uh, a Fitbit user for about 10 years, so I guess that's a... Um, an accomplishment. Um, so it, indeed, I'm, I'm German, but I grew up in California. So I would say that uh, I actively participated in some of these digital health revolutions that you just uh, were talking about. Um, my fourth grade teacher taught me about Napster in my math class. Um, so I'll always be thankful uh, for him for not only teaching me algebra, math, and geometry, but also for giving me some insights into the digital world. And indeed, um, I studied microbiology and immunology, uh, which in the beginning was always not so interesting, so to say. Um, everyone said that non-communicable diseases um, were out and uh, that we would no longer have to deal with infections. Uh, that's, of course, different now that we have a pandemic. Um, but, um, so I studied in UCLA and, uh, after that I, uh, was interested in the technological applications of, of, of healthcare, of, um, of science. And, um, I, I began working at, in a medical simulation lab, helping doctors to basically perform surgeries better and to apply new technologies and, um, new, new, uh, care pathways. Uh, and kind of learning along the go about how these um, professionals uh, adapted to new technologies was something that made me interested in uh, public health, uh, which I then studied. And uh, um, I studied that in Germany. So I moved back to Germany, uh, uh, studied um, public health there and realized that uh, Germany was quite behind in terms of digital applications. <laughs> Not only was it very challenging to um, track a website and understand even what the course offerings were or what uh, the material is that we had to learn, um, uh, but I just realized that the, the acceptance and the conservatism of, uh, of Germany was definitely prominent. Um, and... Uh, I think, you know, growing up in, in Silicon Valley, um, once I did finish my studies, I was looking for exactly that piece of innovation and entrepreneurship in, in Europe. And uh, I, I, as a European and as a German, wanted to contribute to that, to seeing what I had seen in, uh, in the U.S. and California, that fast pace of technology. And um, that's how I found uh, EIT Health. Uh, meanwhile, I've been working at EIT Health for for four years, um, almost five, and uh, I'm just about uh, to receive my diploma for my MBA in the mail as well. And um, and 
am extremely excited by all of the entrepreneurs that we've had and supported, many of which I used to know by name in the beginning, uh, Kurt as well, I think. Uh, but meanwhile, with a thousand startups in the portfolio, I'm, I'm not sure I can name all of them. Um, but they're, they're very inspiring and were also one of the topics for, uh, for my thesis, which was just turned in. But, uh, yeah, so Kurt, Kurt and I have grown some, grown some startups along the way, but of course they've done most of the work themselves and, uh, quite a majority of them are in the digital health and medtech space. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. It's great to hear. Uh, so you came from Silicon Valley uh, to Europe. It reminded me of, I think it was from, from Plato, Aristotle, uh, Allegory of the Cave. So I hope it's not too politically incorrect, but uh, coming from Silicon Valley to the European cave to uh, support the development of uh, digital health here is, uh, is a great thing. I think uh, you have seen probably uh, what I like in, in the Bay Area is um, um, how how the investment scene evolved and uh, everything around entrepreneurship and how to build and scale companies. So that's very valuable. Uh, Kurt, where are you coming from? <laughs> Thanks, Christian. I'm I'm actually half Austrian and half German, but I'm I'm born in Munich, um, so I grew up in Bavaria. I um, got got familiar to to entrepreneurship already through my family. Uh, my father running running his own company and his family business. I very got uh, already early involved. Um, got to a boarding school actually, um, to monastery boarding school for nine years. Had nine years of Latin, um, lots of physics and mathematics. But then in the end, I decided uh, to study electrical engineering at the University of Erlangen. Um, there, I um, in the first five years focused on on technology. I would say um, on on sensors on. Um, also data processing a bit. Um, I worked a lot in the Fraunhofer Institute, um, the one in Erlangen that invented MP3. So it was great to get in touch with scientists over there. And then um, at some point of time, um, rather to the end of, of my studies, I get in touch with a, with a, with a great professor um, who taught us um, the algorithms of medical image processing. That was a lecture that was not part of my curriculum. It was part of the computer science department, but it was so amazing and fascinating that I just um, visited that. And there, um, um, actually, we um, I, I somehow got into a PhD at the computer science department with that professor, who is nowadays uh, the president of the university in Erlangen. And there I learned um, how how fascinating the, um, um, the area of medical technology of um, um, even back then artificial intelligence and biomedical engineering is, we call it differently, we call it pattern recognition, but in the end that was, that was uh, where I put my PhD uh, thesis on. I um, 
had not the chance to grow up in, in the US and in Silicon Valley like Joy, but at least I had some research stays um, at Johns Hopkins University. So in the end, I then took the opportunity to, to go to their labs and also to learn about interdisciplinary collaboration um, at, the, at the Johns Hopkins Humboldt campus in, in, in the north where all kind of engineering um, uh, people work together from mechanical engineering, computer science, electrical engineering, and so on, together, of course, with, with clinicians. And then after that, I also did an MBA in entrepreneurship just um, to, to, to get more insights into the, into the business area. And um, out of the, um, the PhD, um, we realized there is a great need in biomedical engineering um, and uh, bachelor and master course for that, which did not exist. Um, so I somehow got the task together with my PhD advisor and friend Achim Honegger to, to develop a new bachelor and master course on biomedical engineering. And I did that. We started that. It uh, got one of the most successful bachelor programs um, in that field in Europe, I would say. Um, many, many thousands of students have gone through that program. And it's really interesting to see that uh, what I thought would be interesting to those students um, is now taught to those uh, that, that then after their studies go to, to Siemens or, um, or, or Philips or GE or all the others uh, in that space. Uh, in order to also have a um, to have a framework for that uh, for that bachelor and master program, we created a, a central institute of healthcare engineering, where I was the founding director of. And um, that institute, that central institute, um, was formed out of fifty professors um, from all kinds of disciplines, and we coordinated lots of research um, and collaboration projects. What Siemens was found over, we got uh, funding. Um, from, from the Federal Ministry of Education and Research, um, 40 million in total, uh, mainly acquired through Medical Valley. And um, its, um, its CEO, the former uh, Siemens Health Engineers CEO, Erich Reinhardt. So uh, that was also a great, great environment for me to, to, to grow and to, to learn a lot. And out of that position, I uh, represented the area, so mainly University of Erlangen, Medical Valley, Fraunhofer, and Siemens, in a consortium that was newly built um, to apply for a European funding. I didn't know anything about that at um, the point of time when I joined that in 2012. But then it turned out that the top universities um, in Europe, but also the top industry players, got together. Um, it took a couple of years. So in the end, uh, we submitted the final proposal in 2014, a proposal for receiving 1 billion euro in order to drive innovation and entrepreneurship in healthcare in Europe, uh, together with a very strong partnership. That proposal uh, was successful. So we have been successfully selected. And um, until the submission phase, I was spokesperson of all the German universities and I was member of the executive committee of that consortium. And uh, once we had submitted our proposal and got successfully selected, um, I just took the chance to, to also apply for the management board of that um, or a position, a management position in that, in that new entity. And after three months of heavy assessment center, I made it there. And that's a position that I still have as a director of business creation at EIT Health. I forgot to say, um, that's maybe also important, In on my way, on my academic way, I also uh, was founder and co-founder of several startups, so I um, also have that, that startup DNA, which is, which is always important to keep in mind, and um, I also learned a bit of that, and now that 
kind of brings me back to joy. Um, in my MBA, I had uh, several courses and classes at Santa Clara University, um, which is which is located right in Silicon Valley. So I, I also got that uh, that entrepreneurship DNA, which is so important for my nowadays business. Very impressive. Congratulations. I'm listening to podcasts from Silicon Valley. So <laughs> we have something in common. Um, One billion fundraising to start AT Health. Uh, did I understand that correctly? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yes, it's in total, it's uh, 1 billion euro over mm -hmm. lifetime, over 15 years. Uh, not everything was paid out in 2015 when we then officially started. Um, it was ramped up slowly. We started with roughly 20 million euro in 2016. And then um, we increased our budget last year uh, in 2022. We had our peak with uh, mm -hmm. significantly more than 100 million euro. And um, now the funding is getting reduced um, throughout the next 10 years. And we have to replace the funding through own revenues that we, that we create with our programs. But overall, it's a 1 million euro um, investment, you could say, of the European Commission and the European Union into our organization, into our consortium in order to drive innovation in health. That's very that's very impressive. Congratulations! Uh, can you give a little bit of background to AT Health? How this one billion converted into um, activities in Europe? So in the end, um, let's let's start where um, where the idea comes from. Uh, the former president Barroso uh, visited MIT or visited MIT Harvard and and other uh, important institutions in Cambridge, Boston area, but um, he he was super much impressed already 20 years ago, actually, uh, one, one has to keep in mind, or uh, 15 years ago, um, one has to keep in mind that um, there was such a strong collaboration between industry, academia, um, politicians, uh, last but not least, but um, also together with investors and entrepreneurs. So those um, five stakeholders collaborated very well in order to drive innovation. And he um, did not know that from the European landscape, at least not at that scale. And then he flew back and said, I want to have something like, uh, like that ecosystem also in Europe. And then he pretty quickly realized that he could not select a certain location somewhere in Europe um, to, to concentrate all the top scientists, all the top players in industry and academia to build up that ecosystem. Therefore, um, his idea was to put money in the middle and um, um, bring all those actors, so like um, representatives from industry and academia together to build consortia and to provide a plan what they would do with that money to 
to create a similar type of ecosystem, even if it would be a virtual ecosystem. So not at one place, it would be, would be a network that links all those great institutions across Europe. He started with that um, 12 years ago, and there we had um, the first three so-called knowledge and innovation communities. We could also uh, call them faculties. There was energy, climate, and digital. Um, that was the first three. And then um, five years later, he created, uh, or there was a, a second call launched for health and raw materials. And each of those uh, five faculties, um, now we have three more, um, got the commitment of uh, 1 billion euro over lifetime. And that was kind of the carrot that you always need to bring all those actors together. And once they have come together and once they... Um, Have, have laid out a plan how to do that. Um, then, of course, there is, there is a dynamic um, that, that exceeds by far the, just the pure funding that is put into because the, the collaboration itself, I think, is, is, uh, is, the, is the huge value. It's not just the funding, it's, it's really the, the collaboration that was triggered through that funding. I completely agree to what you say. Um, capital is always a big enabler to uh, move things forward. And uh, I believe in Europe, especially when we come to deep tech, there is still, uh, compared to the United States and China, still a huge gap and uh, any money that flows into the direction of uh, the digital world or uh, health tech or pharma development is very helpful. You mentioned that um, MIT was a role model for EIT Health, but uh, there is no university or is there a, a did, I, did I miss something? Is there an uh, EIT university or did you decide to choose a slightly different model? So EIT indeed um, sounds exactly like MIT and mm -hmm. um, that is by purpose, um, European Institute of Innovation and Technology. And um, that exists, but it's no university. It's an, it's an um, official institution of the European Commission. So mm -hmm. EIT is in the end the funding body um, that provides the funding. The consortia themselves, of course, include universities. Um, so we have uh, many top universities across Europe or actually um, all the top five, if you look into the most innovative uh, universities ranking uh, from, from Reuters, um, and I think 50% from, from the 25 two top universities. So we, we have those universities as part of EIT Hub, but um, it is not a university itself. In general, mm -hmm. we, are, we are a partner-driven organization. So in total, uh, that's 150 partners um, that, that form and build that organization. We are an official association. In German, it's an EV, Eingetragener Verein, which is pretty funny. Uh, having an EV, managing 1 billion euro of funding, um, that is... That is uh, it's innovative. It's innovative. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree with what you say. I mean, I think we have wonderful universities and uh, a lot of great researchers already in Europe. Um, so focusing on the on building the ecosystem to, to help um, uh, to foster collaboration and innovation across Europe is, is, is a very smart move. Very smart move. Uh, Choi, what, what is your role at uh, ET Health? Which initiatives uh, do you coordinate? Great. Um, yeah, uh, thanks so much for, for the question. Um, maybe just briefly going back to one aspect that we're talking about uh, with the universities. I think one interesting thing that um, the aim of the uh, EIT initiatives is, is to find a structured framework among the most innovative um, universities that there are in Europe and to try to ensure that there is a way to uh, exchange information and best practice. And uh, therefore, you know, one 
aspect that uh, EIT does have, for instance, are label degree programs that um, all of the universities offer that have the seal of EIT. So it's not just offered at one university, but several. Um, so I think that's an interesting aspect because uh, um, these label degree programs are, of course, uh, very focused on the particular, you know, verticals like health or digital mobility. Um, but going away from the universities um, and also the structure of, of EIT, um, basically the, although um, our work is always focused around how do we bridge university industry and startups together, um, the aspect that I'm responsible for is the accelerator, which basically I see myself as an advocate for the startups um, while still maintaining and integrating the other two pieces of the industry and the university together. Um, so we at the Accelerator have a portfolio of different programs that we offer our startups from rather early stage um, where startups participate in two-month boot camps or react to a, a pharmaceutical challenge um, that one of our pharmaceutical partners has offered where they're looking for a particular solution whether it be, usually they are in digital health uh, uh, and in uh, following the patient journey. Um, but we also offer um, programs on um, to support companies in mentoring and coaching during their validation process, um, as well as soft landing programs where we actually um, quite... Uh, uh, where we tackle the issues of European companies from, for instance, Germany looking to expand to France and Spain um, to, to other large, um, large markets. And uh, finally, we also offer um, financing programs uh, to allow companies to, to, to scale and to, to be uh, competitive and catapult them forward. Um, so from these programs that we have, um, we, uh, we have about, uh, I think, around 15, 18 or so actively uh, today. Um, the, the, my responsibility is to integrate and make sure that we have a startup journey. However, that is really not very, that's really not very uh, easy because uh, as innovative as startups may be, you understand that they are looking for um, exactly what they need in their startup journey. And although we may have mapped something out, uh, particularly for them, um, that's often not the case. That's, that's great. Um, let me connect to what you both said a little bit from my story. So basically in the 80s, uh, when I got interested in um, computer technology, let's just call it this way, um, we were just nerds. So these loners who were sitting alone in front of a computer doing something. Uh, when these nerds grew older... Um, they usually went to the universities and uh, they are, uh, helped also starting uh, providing services to people like building websites. Um, and in one point in time, suddenly revenues came in and then the question arose, uh, what should we do? And uh, 
the advice was mostly from tax consultants, you, know, you need to create a company. So um, it was out of necessity, product market fit, we create companies. And uh, then usually these companies ended quite quickly because the scaling was next to impossible. I uh, grew up in uh, Styria uh, as uh, investment capital um, was lacking. Um, we didn't have any terminology. So startup, scale up, all these, uh, these new terms that... Um, that are coming up recently. And uh, when I look at uh, the digital health sector, um, I'm a little bit overwhelmed currently. So we have digital health. We have, uh, yesterday I read an article on Visual Capitalist about the health tech revolution. Then uh, Kathy Wood, for example, uh, from the ARC funds uh, has identified five platforms of innovation. It's like robotics, blockchain technology. And uh, there are so many terms on the internet right now can you help me a little bit with uh giving the definition of at health how you see uh the actual um development in the healthcare sector and which terminology you use actually that's not an not an easy one as you as you say so let's let's put it that way um among the among the more than 1000 startups that we have um we try to classify them or actually we ask them to classify themselves so we, we ask them, um, are you um, medtech, are you biotech diagnostics, or are you digital health? And then they have to put themselves somewhere. Um, that is, for example, especially important um, in our EIT Health Catapult. That's our Europe-wide uh, business plan competition um, with hundreds of thousands of prize money. Um, that is that is something very. Of course, it makes also a difference to them if they compete with medtech companies um, that usually are a bit more mature, or if they compete in the category with digital health startups um, that are usually a bit less mature, but uh, where we see even more applications. So it's um, it's it's also up to them. In in general, I would say um, we we summarize within digital health everything that um, that has to do something with mobile health like like the apps um, that we know but usually we want to have uh, medical products so apps um, that that are registered as a medical product and um, even get reimbursement ideally um, of course everything that has something to do with healthcare IT um, medical image processing for example uh, with a strong focus on artificial intelligence uh, very important personal personalized health. Um, so where we um, also need to, to, to use many data points in order to predict a bit um, the health status of, of the patient. Um, also, a very important area is variable technologies. Um, there, you could argue, is it more medtech because it consists usually of sensors or is the secret more in the algorithms um, that then uh, process the data that are recorded by the sensors. So usually we, we see that as a digital health product. Um, or of course, everything that has to do with telemedicine, telehealth, um, that's also part of digital health. In the end, it's always the, the question, software versus hardware. Uh, what is the, what is the important factor? Where is the IP related to? Um, what's the, what's the secret of the company? Joy, how do you define uh, the the many companies uh, that you see? Which terminology do you use in your acceleration activities? 
You know, and in the very beginning, as as Quote just mentioned, uh, we we had some struggles to define it ourselves, and we we actually used all of the insights from our partners that work with us in the accelerator to help define it. You know, with us. Um, so I think it, indeed the 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 aspects of uh, information technology, medical imaging processing, um, and wearables, and Telehealth and telemedicine um, were, um, were were very deeply discussed in the last few years, and uh, as of right now, um, I, I would definitely uh, agree to to those aspects. Um, however, of course, we we continue to see more pharmaceutical companies uh, with digital health applications, or where um, the pharmaceutical aspect of um, the product and the service that the company is offering is actually the the part that is more, I don't know, I would say untouchable, uh, whereas what they're seeking support with is the digital health application. Um, so we we see some challenges when we see startups like this applying, um, where we, we realize that although they're a pharmaceutical diagnostic company um, and or uh, although they're a pharmaceutical company that has a, a product on the market, the the uh, tandem product is what they are applying um, for our services and for our support for. And uh, there's where we are currently having some new discussions about um, how they fit into our pipeline and how we can best service and support them. That's uh, that's great. I was just looking up... Um... On the internet, um, a company that uh, that's name uh, name I forgot. So as you mentioned, that pharma is uh, not so much interested in one part of of the offering, but in the other part. And the first time I heard it was a couple of years ago when. Uh, <clears throat> When Roche acquired an Austrian company, which unfortunately I forgot the name, it's uh, it's operating in uh, diabetes. And uh, as far as I remember, Roche was interested in the data they generated. So basically, the the app was uh, developed to help uh, diabetic patients um, to just keep track of the development of their disease. And uh, Roche bought it because of uh, the huge amount of data. Uh, they had collected over the years, which pretty much um, connects uh, to the Fitbit story with 60 billion data points for a sleep study. Um, but nevertheless, until 2020, I had the feeling that it was just a slow movement so from, from pharma towards digital sector and that a lot of uh, innovation potential was not really, uh, let's say, unlocked uh, by uh, investments of the pharma industry and also the medical device industry. Then suddenly in March 2020, we had the Black Swan event. Um, pandemic hits the world. And uh, first of all, especially uh, with investments on the stock market, everything is over now. We have a huge crash, uh, but it didn't happen. So uh, it reverted quite quickly and the digital sector really took off. Um, from what I heard from you both, you have really a sweet spot in Europe. So you are sitting uh, in between uh, the different interest groups. So you have the startups, you have the scale-ups, you have politics, and you have the big companies. What I'm curious to, to hear from you is uh, how did the pandemic shape the European ecosystem um, in the last couple of months? What changes did you see due to the pandemic in the digital health sector? Good. Yeah, I would say um, 
One, one, one uh, common saying in the meantime is that the COVID-19 crisis has, has uh, brought 10 years of market evolution in just 10 weeks. Um, I heard that now several times from, from different people, and that's, that's really true. And it's not so much the, that, that research was sped up so quickly or um, that, um, that, 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 that there have been scientific breakthroughs in, um, in visual health areas. It's more the, the overall adoption, the awareness um, that digital, digital tools, that um, digital algorithms uh, have, have a major impact. And I mean, that starts with, uh, with, with everyone in, in, in their daily life. Um, usually you, you had uh, personal meetings and um, in some cases you had online meetings and now everyone is totally used to, to use all the online tools. Um, to, uh, to, to even shift whole conferences into, into online uh, editions and online versions. And of course, all of this webinar, um, this podcast is, um, is, is online. So I think people get used to that. That's the first thing. And with that acceptance, they looked into how would um, digital, digital tools and digital life also apply to, to healthcare? Because um, on the one hand, uh, everyone was looking uh, forward to, to vaccination and maybe some, some treatments from the pharma industry. On the other hand, everyone also realized that um, due to the lockdowns and shutdowns, uh, many of the usual um, personal interventions did not take, take place anymore because hospitals were either overloaded or closed in order to avoid infections. So um, people really intensively looked into alternatives and possibilities, not only in the education sector, in schools where we also saw a quick, or even in lectures at universities where we saw a quick quick rise, but also in um, in, in, in healthcare and uh, within healthcare providers. So that huge interest um, certainly, certainly changed a lot. Nevertheless, um, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to point out that um, ERT Health is in a really different position, uh, interesting position, um, because we, when we started our um, health catapult in in 2016, we already had that category of um, digital health. So we already split it into uh, medtech, biotech, and digital health. And um, in the beginning, there was not so much interest into the digital health category, but we nevertheless had great companies. And um, that kind of brought us on a track where we took care on digital health companies with the same intensity, like with medtech or, or even um, even biotech. Actually, forty percent of our uh, portfolio, pretty constantly, actually, have been in the area of digital health. And I just looked it up uh, this morning. Um, among the one thousand companies that we support, um, we have um, obviously rough a, a bit more than four hundred companies in in digital health and. 60 of them are in Germany, 55 in France, 40 in UK and Spain, 30 in Ireland, Netherlands and Sweden, 20 in Belgium, and so on and so forth. So there's um, a lot of lot of digital health companies. But the important point, um, the adoption, the possibility to get their products um, approved in their regulatory uh, regulatory affairs process, to get reimbursement for that, um, to get into collaborations with important uh, corporates and partners from from pharma industry, that of course has increased a lot uh, in the last eighteen months. So I think um, we already had a lot upfront, uh, but the. The speed, how that is now getting into the market, that has been dramatically increased in the last 18 months. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. 
This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Joy, which changes do you see in your activities on the market um, in the last couple of months due to the pandemic? I'll uh, answer this in a two-part question. Um, maybe from one aspect from the patient consumer side and then uh, from the aspect of the accelerator EIT health side. Um, what I have noticed is that uh, the, the citizens, um, because, you know, uh, All patients are citizens, but not all citizens are patients at the same time. Uh, so I think um, we we might not be the one being treated um, at this one exact moment, but at one point in our life, we will also be treated as uh, patients. Um, but I see that because the there there has it has never been convenient to start the process of telemedicine of telehealth uh, uh, particularly in germany and uh, the the um, convenience of it for for um, doctors uh, was was very low and still is i think low to to this day However, due to necessity, um, it really has increased the awareness of um, citizens, patients, caregivers, how useful of a technolo technology, uh, how useful of a tool technology can be. And um, yesterday, uh, while I was doing um, some work, I received a phone call from my insurance company, and um, I was wondering if I had not paid a bill or something. Uh, and in the end, um, my insurance for the first time was calling me to ask me um, if I had done any preventative uh, healthcare steps recently. And it took me a little bit uh, aback, um, but I, I realized that the, the openness of the, the large availability of these, uh, of these insurance apps was also related to the changes and the shifts that had happened in 18 months. Uh, 18 months ago, I don't think I would have answered that phone call. <laughs> um, but, but this time, I, I figured they, they might have uh, some interesting topics, for instance, telling me that my, um, my costs have gone up uh, for the year due to the pandemic, but instead I was happily surprised that they were really pushing the preventative health agenda. And uh, um, they're also, you know, learned some great phone etiquette along the way. Um, but from the, from the perspective of um, leading our, leading our portfolio of programs um, in March, um, at the start of the pandemic, um, we, we were sitting in our virtual conference rooms, uh, wondering for the first uh, two days um, after I had just gotten back from holidays, um, stuck in the airport, uh, trying to get back in the grips of the pandemic, um, what, what should we do as EIT Health and um, what is it that we can do for our startups at this moment? 
um, it, it, it took some, some brainstorming and there, there were loads of EIT health initiatives, such as a matchmaking platform on our website for innovators to meet each other that had part of what they thought were the solution. Um, but specifically what, 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 what I led through the accelerator was, um, um, an initiative where we received money from the European Union, the Crisis Response Initiative, um, and this funded our startup rescue instrument. Um, in the startup rescue instrument, uh, we, we were provided with five million uh, to select uh, companies, uh, 10 to 10 to 11 companies, um, in order to support them uh, during a period where they saw some of their supporting investors leaving the round. Um, so in many cases, um, the lead investor was still committed, um, but due to the insecurity of the market, due to what you just mentioned, Christian, the stock market, um, you know, uh, plummeting for that second and everyone panicking, um, this portfolio first um, aspect was 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 felt by the companies um, where suddenly the good relationships that they had had with um, with interested uh, investors dropped. Um, it, to, to just say, you know, um, I, I need to look at what I've already invested in in order to ensure that I have I have secured my own family's namesake. And uh, um, so it, within a period of, of uh, three months, we had created a, a new program for emergency support for startups. Um, selected these uh, startups and um, and also sent them on their way to create project plans for how they would survive the next uh, 12 months. Uh, and this is a process that generally usually takes um, our communities, especially those that work within uh, within or connected to government institutions um, a year and a half or so, um, because it does take the entire effort of um, of, of everyone in one organization, but we were lucky enough to have that with our within our team and uh, also within our partnership um, and the experts in our community that all came together to understand the the necessity and uh, be able to uh, provide some extra firepower for these companies so that they could make it to their second part of their Series B round, uh, for instance. I echo what, what Joy just said. That was, um, that was an, a very interesting insight. So in the beginning, we thought, okay, that's, um, that seems to be interesting and there will be a lot of attention uh, to, 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 to our startups providing either support in, um, in, in, in fighting COVID or providing digital solutions in order to still keep on support. And... Um, we got first signal, so it was not obvious to me in the beginning, but we got very quickly um, in, in April signals that uh, fundraising rounds would, would, would not be completed and would, would be put on hold uh, for the reasons that, that Joy just outlined, uh, the portfolio first uh, approach of all the investors to, to keep their money together for their existing companies. And um, I then checked with um, many, many people in our env environment, not only the startups, but um, for example, a friend of mine, uh, Thomas Turner, uh, who is who is heading the the, the capital equity markets um, in the Dach region uh, for Morgan Stanley, he totally confirmed that um, that everything is is put on hold and that nothing is nothing is moving forward for many many startups, even if they are actually now 
absolutely on the rise, um, have, a, have a strong capital need. And uh, we then put together a package for the commission and uh, outlined that to the commission that there is an urgent need of, of uh, funding to, to save those fundraising rounds. We don't have to cover everything, but we, should, we have to put that signal that the, that the uh, European Union is also contributing um, to, to help closing those fundraising rounds uh, to keep all the other investors together. And that's then in the end what we did. And you have to imagine, I mean, our team is not too small, roughly roughly 25 people in the, in the X-ray team at ETL. But so um, beyond all the daily work and business they had to do, uh, we had put together this crisis instrument for startups where we had to do a lot of due diligence under choice leadership. Um, we had um, far more than 100 companies that applied. Um, they had a valuation of more than 5 million euros. They had an open fundraising round. They had to show that the fundraising round was above 1 million euro, which is not too small in digital health. Um, and still, there was a huge interest and huge visibility also among um, the European investors. So in the end, we have been able to, to close that within, within a month, more or less. So from starting the process, getting the money from the commission, um, selecting the companies in, in multiple steps, um, involving other investors to do a proper due diligence, and then in the end, awarding um, the money to those companies in order to close their financing rounds. And also, uh, we, we also um, inquired, uh, required that the, um, that the companies would still come with an external lead investor so that it's not only EIT health funding. So that they that they also bring um, external investors, even if it's less than than, than thought before, um, was a was a great success story. And um, from from my perspective, the most interesting thing is uh, that it really also helped companies that actually had a had a had a big opportunity at that point of time. Uh, one of those companies that we funded, uh, based based in Erlangen, was focused on um, on telehealth more or less, so uh, monitoring. Uh, patients with Parkinson's disease with a sensor in their shoes um, with, with, a, with a remote control uh, tool. So in the end, it's it's exactly what was needed in the time. And even for them, it was difficult to close their rounds and with our support. And last but not least, the commission support. Um, they closed the fundraising round and got another, a lot of additional funding afterwards. But um, I think that was a super strong signal. Now, the public funding scene in Europe is uh, excellent. Um, I realized that. Um, to connect to what you said um, uh, last year, in, uh, well, last year in March, I um, think that the first uh, hit that I experienced was that the Bio Europe went digital and uh, was. Uh, prepared to go to Paris, uh, but unfortunately it didn't happen. And I, I got pretty much the same message that you said. Initially, the investors said, okay, let's focus on our portfolios. Let's see that the companies we have already um, can survive. And um, it looked like that not much is going on in, uh, in the investment world in Europe. So it reminded me, Back in March, when I started the predecessor of this uh, of this podcast, it was basically a, a quarterly meetup of uh, life science investors and uh, and entrepreneurs. And the reason why I did it was that um, I did a little bit of research on the European private funding market, not the public funding market, which is early stage. And uh, I compared it with China and the United States. And 
the interesting thing was that um, got the number for Europe that uh, private investments in uh, the healthcare sector, it's uh, diagnostics, medical devices, digital and uh, therapeutics, uh, is about 3.7 billion uh, euros back in 2017. And uh, in China and in the United States, uh, the private sector invests four to five times this amount. So it's about, let's say, 20, 20 billion at the minimum per year. I thought back then I found the holy investment grail. So we have a lot of underfinanced companies here in Europe, uh, great technology. And uh, I thought it is a smart move to fly to the United States. And uh, the question that's coming, uh, Joy, is uh, directed to you. Um, and I thought that it, it must be easy to convince the U.S. investors uh, to invest in Europe because I saw these uh, high valuations in the United States. So it was going up. Uh, it was a little bit on the contrary. You have uh, in the U.S. back in 2017, 18, uh, not so many companies like uh, compared to the capital that was on the market. So I thought, uh, let's talk the investors into investing in Europe. Um, well, uh, it created a huge laughter on the investor side because they say, hey, what do you think? We know that. We know that um, the European market is underfinanced and you have great technology, but you don't have one thing. It's entrepreneurs. So I, I was curious because I always thought uh, Europe is basically great in technology and entrepreneurship and I asked these investors, why do you say that? And they said, look, Christian, when we talk to European uh, founders, what they try to do is to sell to us their product. They don't offer their company. So it's a very tech-driven uh, uh, society and ecosystem. What you miss are the entrepreneurs. When we talk to US-based entrepreneurs, they talk how they build companies and not so much about the product. We are not their customers. We are their investors. Um, so I perceived in the description of these investors uh, a cultural difference between the Silicon Valley tech sector and entrepreneurship and products and technology and how the European landscape is perceived. Now, I'm curious, Joy, you know both ecosystems. Uh, how do you see uh, these cultural differences? Are they still there um, after what we uh, experienced in the eight? in the last 18 months or was i just uh lucky to speak to a certain class of investors who only know a small part of the european ecosystem well um i haven't been able to travel to the us for the last 18 months so i wouldn't be able to measure the sentiment or the changes um that have happened in the us since um but i can certainly see that in in europe uh one aspect of of the entrepreneurship um, is changing. And um, like you were saying, I think uh, we, we are very technology focused and in Europe, uh, we, we have uh, great research institutions. Um, we um, have uh, patent centers that are actively working and uh, are even housed in, in Munich where our EITL EV headquarters are. Um, however, the yeah the selling of the life the lifestyle of the entrepreneur I think is is uh, maybe the main key uh, that is necessary in order to sell the company and not the product. And I think this this uh, the lifestyle of the entrepreneur um, concept 
is uh, something we are increasingly, I think, more aware of when um, in recently, because um, one thing that the U.S. has always been great at is connecting digitally, whether it is using Slack, um, whether it is using Reddit through subreddit posts, you <laughs> you can dive very deeply into one particular category of in investment mm-hmm. or into a niche market where you understand uh, crypto cryptocurrency valuations uh, or through Telegram. Everything is uh, excessively connected and interconnected uh, within uh, California, at least. And you feel that energy when you walk into a coffee shop, uh, whether you're ordering your Starbucks um, necessity coffee with seven different ingredients. Um, but meanwhile, you're, you're hearing how businesses are made and, um, and, and yeah, the energy of wanting to always pitch all the time. Um, and um, I do feel that uh, in, in some circumstances and some small hubs within uh, within Europe, you start to feel that a little bit more. Um, when I walked into a Barcelona incubator, um, this was already 18 months ago, but to kind of feel the vibrancy and the energy of uh, that connecting everything with the coffee shop um, or uh, even actually in Erlangen, which is Kurt's hometown, I think I told him once that uh, I had this feeling that I was in Stanford uh, when I was in a parking lot in Erlangen because uh, in the meantime, three people that had been connected to research institutions all accidentally met in the Aldi parking lot uh, buying their groceries. And this happenstance um, and serendipity is, I think, what really drives everything forward. Um, and uh, we, we have to make sure to continue in engaging and, uh, and following up on um, those, um, those offers to be mentored or those offers to mentor others. And uh, that helpfulness is maybe not yet there. This extreme friendliness that you sometimes feel in California and uh, I think that can really contribute to to making uh, Europe more entrepreneurial so that we also uh, increase our valuations here. Christian, here you have that, that quote from because because Christoph Lengauer, who is running our gold track, is uh, constantly telling our, our startups and, and, and companies there uh, that they should not should not think about selling their products to the investors, but uh, uh, promoting their companies and um that's 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 very very true, and what Joy just said um, is is hundred um, percent right. It's um, we are certainly not at that point of um, of recognition and awareness, also from from entrepreneurs' perspective. Uh, but I think it's it's getting better and better. Of course, you have those international centers and and clusters where we we also have lots of researchers from abroad that that bring that mentality we also see that um that even in in um, european governments the thinking is is changing a bit and i think it's also reflecting a bit um in the valuation of of companies so you you mentioned the the almost 4 billion euro of overall valuation in 2020 um Indeed, um, I also found that number in a, in our deal room report that we, that we collaborated to, uh, that was issued in April this year. 
And um, there it was stated that um, the overall valuation of European health tech companies grew from, from 1.9 billion euro in 2016, so just five a year, five years ago. Um, so it doubled up to up to four billion euro now. And also an interesting fact is that um, the combined um, so that there was the investment and the combined enterprise value of the European health tech startups has grown from 8 billion euro in 2016 to 41 billion euro in 2021. So you can clearly see that also the valuation of health tech companies and startups in, in Europe is dramatically growing. And I think that indeed has the two factors. One, of course, we just have more of those companies. So that, of course, contributes a lot to the overall valuation. Um, but I think also that um, that entrepreneurs are getting better in in also selling not only their products but also their their companies. Well, I completely agree. There is a huge improvement uh, on on the market. That I also perceive. I, I read an, an article on LinkedIn recently, which stated that investment wise in in private investments, I think we are already at twelve billion this year, which uh, is as much as. Uh, was invested in 2020. So, but it was an article that was published in in July. So it's a great thing. I was smiling, Joy, when you mentioned Reddit. Um, uh, this is this this uh, how did, this chat app. So I always perceived Reddit as uh, it's just a chat app uh, for the young, like ICQ was in the 90s. So don't don't take that serious. And suddenly in um, in in January there was this. Uh, how should I call it? This big uh, GameStop incident when uh, a group of uh, retail investors uh, brought um, short sellers, so huge mutual funds, uh, to their knees and uh, just exaggerated a little bit and uh, begging for mercy so that the SEC intervened and uh, investigated that case. <clears throat> And I started reading through these Reddit groups. And of course, I mean, there is a lot of, uh, let's say, not very much politically correct chatter. But uh, in between, there are serious uh, analyses of companies on the market uh, and people openly share the information. And I'm quite amazed. And this is what I learned during the pandemic, um, how willing uh, people in the United States are to share their research to share their insights. Also, when I look at on YouTube, uh, entrepreneurship advice, uh, it's great what uh, what we see. And um, a question to you both, do you also see uh, opening Europe up, um, let's say, to, to not being so closed down in communicating, to be really starting openly for free, sharing, uh, putting out the information on the market? How do you create companies? How do you create startups? Uh, do you see also a shift in the communication style in Europe? <laughs> <laughs> um, a communication style. Um, I would say, I would say that um, I mentioned earlier that we at EIT Health had a platform where we would allow innovators to meet each other so that they could come up together with uh, certain solutions. And uh, I think that this kind of platform, particularly um, when one knows that the information comes from a reputable source and when one knows that the innovators are, um, you know, have a healthcare goal in mind, um, that's when the, the most advances can come, come from it. And I think um, overall, um, EIT Health has 
positioned itself as a partner of choice, not only through its accelerator where we work with other incubators and clusters and uh, and institutions that support companies um, and support them in soft landing. Uh, we, we see that this, this um, not a middleman, but a translator uh, can often be very helpful when communicating these messages um, because you, you, you do want to do so in a, in a way that, um, of course, through, through the commission and through uh, the other projects that we have at EIT Health, we are actively interested in sharing, uh, sharing data and fair data, but we also need to actively define together what that means. What are the startups, for instance, in our community willing to share? Uh, we now have our partnership with Dealroom, um, where we do um, uh, where we do reports on our companies as a whole, on our portfolio, um, in specific areas and segments. Um, but we also need to be aware of how willing companies, for instance, are to share that they're interested in a new funding round. Or, um, but. Uh, this this needs to be, I think, also part of the active conversation that I'd mentioned earlier about um, being okay to to seek um, mentorship or offering mentorship yourself. Um, as we we have to find what everyone in the community is willing to put in and uh, and share, and also um, uh, ensure that people are interested in taking something out of it. It's a very um... It's a it's a it's an attitude, um, Christian and Joy, that you were describing that I know very well from my from my German past. Let's say to to keep kind of secret and closed what you're working on, also as a scientist, and not share too much. Um, um, which is on the one hand good because um, we also see the problem that that many many companies um, want to want to file file a patent and, and create IP on something that they already have published, which of course is uh, public knowledge then, and, and, and uh, you can't put a patent on that. So you have to be careful on, on what you share. On the other hand, or what you share publicly in a publication or in a, in a, in a public talk. On the other hand, um, collaboration is super, super important. So sharing insights um, to other colleagues, um, also Other colleagues worldwide, and um, uh, not not working on on um, difficult issues and um, big challenges, big big scientific questions. Everyone individually and alone. Um, that that doesn't bring anyone further. So uh, that was also a, a big lesson of my uh, of my PhD advisor Achim Honegger that that he said. Um, Let's be open. And he he uh, was a visiting professor at, at Stanford. And, um, and MIT before, uh, so he knew that culture. And uh, when he, he when he took over the lab with, uh, with his 40s um, and, and 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 got shared, um, he he clearly told everyone in the in the lab, please collaborate, please share your insights uh, with with all your colleagues um, that you that you collaborate internationally. And if someone steals your idea, then um, you will be quick in having the next one. But uh, rather than slowly progressing individually and alone with what you're working for, then you can be sure that someone else will, will bypass you anyway. So try to be as quick as possible by collaborating with others, by exchanging with others. And then in the end, uh, you will not win every race, but at least you have a chance to, 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 be, to be the first one um, together with your colleagues in, in some of the questions. And I think that... That was an example from the academic world, but it very well translates um, also to 
to to our companies because um, uh, that's that's an important aspect. We try to form teams, um, especially in the early stage companies. In in our boot camps, we bring together or the wildcard uh, projects. We bring together companies, um, 10, 10 different companies, ten different teams that work collaboratively. And then also test their ideas uh, with pitching to each other, working in, in, in peer groups. And that, of course, is much stronger, uh, especially on an international level. If you have these international teams and groups, uh, then, then everyone just testing it with neighbor at home or um, uh, telling, telling um, the, the girlfriend or boyfriend what they, what they did. So I think that's, that's really important and uh, key learning that is um, starting to, to, to take place. Not everywhere, but I think, I think also in Europe, you're getting better on that. We, we actually have a pretty good example of uh, uh, two companies that met in one of our, not our, our most early stage program, actually a competition program, uh, the European Health Catapult, uh, where we offer um, mentoring and training to startups, but um, also prepare them for their next investment rounds. And uh, um, like Quote was saying, they, they really form a cohort together. And uh, two of these companies were so actively sharing with each other. They were with another company in a small working group. And um, once they had learned to, to trust each other, uh, they began to even, even more actively share. And the result of, of, of this sharing was actually a new product and a new you know, company, uh, an initiative uh, where they recently applied for European funding as well with their joint um, with their joint resources. And I think that's, that's something that, that we can see, uh, as a, a direct example of, uh, of the fruits that you can bear if you are, uh, willing to collaborate with your peers. There are great points in, in what you say. I think, um, I once read that, uh, success is, uh, only defined by 5%, uh, um, so ideas are only 5% of the success and execution is the other 95%. So people should not be too worried about uh, sharing ideas because uh, most people they share the ideas with um, don't have the will to execute on them. So the best mode is uh, really, as you said, working hard. Um, in 1995, uh, Austria, I think it was 1995, hopefully, uh, Austria joined the European Union. And uh, when I was asked the question, if that makes sense, uh, it was sold. Uh, so the reason for joining the union was uh, uh, today's challenges um, can only be solved on a global level. So uh, Austria alone cannot survive. So we need to be part of the European Union and part of the global community. And it resonated very well with me. It's um, uh, one people, one currency, one market. Uh, it's Europe. And we connect with uh, Asia and uh, the United States or North America on the other side, um, and I think this project, uh, the European Union, developed very well up to 2020 when the pandemic hit. Um, and since then, I perceived um, not only in Europe, but I think also in in, in uh, what, what I get from the, the newspapers, also in the United States or in Asia, that the borders are, uh, are going up again on one hand. On the other hand, uh, I see a lot of fruitful collaboration. Just think about the vaccine development. Um, the the Europe uh, European example BioNTech um, 
the company didn't say we do it all by ourselves. So we just uh, developed the, we not only developed the vaccine, we also tried to build the distribution network. Um, they went another, a different route. So they started collaborating with Pfizer for the rollout and also in uh, China, what they read recently with uh, Fusun Pharma. Um, my question to you both is um, when, when I see this, uh, these two differences. So industry-wise, I see a lot of collaboration globally. And uh, on the political landscape, uh, I sometimes get the feeling that uh, we are back in the 80s, so that the borders are back up. Um, how do you see it in your in your daily work? Uh, do we Are we still moving towards a united Europe? Or uh, is there a little bit of uh, drawback to nationalism in um, uh, policy-wise? I would say uh, we... We certainly, even if the perception might be might be sometimes different, um, voiced and phrased through individuals and also sometimes through through the corresponding media, I think um, we uh, we all know that we that we can only survive if we collaborate um, and if we if we face all the challenges together. So uh, of course, unfortunately, we saw a race of of some right wing parties in, in in some countries that that took benefit from. From, from the crisis and some of the actions, but in general, I think it's to to most of the reasonable people. It's it's clear that uh, without joining forces, we we have no chance. And there is there are so many examples um, about how we how we should join forces. First, um, you, you mentioned just the vaccine production, uh, looking to the to, to buying the vaccines. Of course, it was. The, the European European Union uh, got into the into the trap to to negotiate too long about the price, and then all the vaccines were sold to to others. Um, that was not the not the best example, but on the other end, it also shows if if all would have joined um, that that the joint mechanism of getting vaccines and also not trying to get everything themselves, but also leaving enough for for other continents, especially the the less developed continents and the and the less rich ones. Um, I think I think that's that's also our responsibility. Second, um, actually we had a we had a we had a think tank um, exercise at EIT Health, and there we looked into into what we what we need for artificial intelligence uh, for health, and there there we identified three things that we can only do on the European level. One is uh, we need we need a um, robust infrastructure for um, for our digital health. Um, environment and for our data. Um, that's the European health data space. And that's something that, that you can't do um, individually. Not every country can do that individually. We have seen that in Estonia, that they have built that kind of in their in their model project, let's call it like that, in a, in a rather small country. They can do that, but uh, for, a, for a broad rollout where you also want to want to cover people that uh, live in one country and work in another country, you need a central European health data space. And um, the predecessor or the first step was GDPR. We all know that um, that GDPR had positive effects, but also some, some not so positive effects. And from my perspective, one of the big issues was that they they thought about it. I, I know that they thought about it, but in the end, in order to get the compromise um, through through the member states um, and, the, and, the, and the council, 
they just decided to not take the uh, European health data space into GDPR. In the end, it would have been much better to already include it upfront that medical data can be treated differently to, to all kind of other uh, personal and private data. Now we have to, uh, to provide the right framework afterwards, which doesn't make it easier. Um, so that's, that's um, the second big challenge to provide the right framework um, for management and governance. Uh, regarding infrastructure, there's also something on its way, uh, Gaia-X. Um, that's that's kind of the, the hardware infrastructure, let's say, um, to, to enable the, the cloud computing, the uh, data, data storage um, in a very safe, um, very clear environment. Um, I think that's super important. And last but not least, um, that's the third point. We have already the MDR. Uh, for for medtech devices uh, now it's aligned between between biotech and medtech um, even if there's still some hiccups but I think that's in principle there and we need of course also to adapt that to digital health and um, digital medicines so that's still an open point that is um, that is a huge disadvantage for European companies because they don't have their own single market um, I don't want even start talking about uh, reimbursement because uh, the fragmentation in the reimbursement sector in Europe is, is, is a nightmare. That's something for the not near future, but midterm future to also get that solved. And that's something that we, that we have to solve together. Otherwise, um, our companies in Europe always will be, uh, will be a bit uh, behind, behind the US and, and, and Asian companies. But that's, that's I would say, the, the, the three key challenges that we have to address and where it's super clear that we can only address that together. Now, coming from the three key aspects that policy has to, has to change and, and has to work on together on a European level, I'd like to, to still go back to the, to the companies, to the startups, thinking the same thing from a startup perspective. Um, what I just said about the reimbursement scheme and also partially the, the regulatory, um, if companies think national, um, they immediately will come to their limits. So they, if they want to scale um, sufficiently, they have to think European, at least European, right from the beginning. In the end, they should even think global, but um, um, for the first step, it might be okay if they think European. And European means maybe just the expansion from their home market to the next neighbor market and then to the next one. But if they, if they uh, set up everything only focusing on their home market, and we have some very good examples from, from a Belgian, Belgium company that gets uh, a patent on their, um, on their digital health algorithm, they get um, regulatory approval, they even get prescription by doctors and reimbursement by the insurance companies in Belgium. And then, um, I mean, it's, not too difficult to cover the Belgian market, but then you have to scale and to expand. And then they realize there is nothing comparable in, in any of, of the other countries. So that that uh, was a was a big issue for them. Now they are doing very well. Um, they are, they even got FDA approval. But um, you, you have to think European. So that also links kind of tasks for European decision makers and policy, plus um, the preparedness of European companies to start European right away. I completely agree to what you say, and I was smiling as you mentioned GDPR. Um, I, I started using the internet in the 90s, and uh, the narrative back then was uh, think twice before you put something online because it sticks there forever. So don't be sorry afterwards. 
Um, and now I see in Europe that we have a different approach. So people put everything online and then uh, we try to create policies to protect them afterwards. So it's uh, quite a, uh, an interesting development. Joy, uh, what policy changes would you think uh, would be helpful to help the European health tech sector grow faster, quicker and better? Maybe I will reinterpret your question on policies and uh, talk about initiatives to policies that have already been agreed upon. Um, but uh, rather, I think one thing that has already been identified um, from a startup support perspective is that there are uh, a lot of European institutions um, that have been acting on, on policies and uh, on uh, the in interests of, of the European Union, of the startups, to create programs um, or funding offers for companies. Um, so much that it begins to become a little bit difficult for a startup to navigate. Um, which European institution can provide me what sort of support? Um, so, of course, I mean, we focused in the beginning of this call um, on EIT. Um, EIT is um, you know, focused on uh, bringing together industry, education, as well as entrepreneurship. Um, but we also have other institutions, such as the European Innovation Council, which um, offers uh, funding um and it, lately it has a, a new opportunity a new offer which is blended financing um so not only this uh public sector support that has already previously existed when it was named the SME instrument phase one and phase two. Um, but now uh, the European Innovation Council in its redesign um, is offering three different uh, programs focusing on um, basically uh, the EIC Accelerator, um, EIC Transitions offer, and the EIC Pathfinder offer. Um, each of those, the first that I mentioned, is uh, for the more um, for the more mature companies. Um, but um, actually, at the beginning of this year, um, or at the end, <laughs> or the middle of last year, we. Um, learned about the opportunity for us to actually be able to connect EIT and EIC together. Um, and uh, we were the ones, uh, again, writing a, a grant proposal uh, to actually be able to merge these institutions together. Um, and um, while EIT is uh, very focused on, uh, you know, sector specifics, um, as well as a, a deeply embedded regional network that connects the, the local nodes to each other, um, EIC is quite sector agnostic, but holds most of the funding buckets. Um, so we had to think to ourselves, how could we, you know, create a startup offering that would allow EIT and EIC to work together? And uh, the same team that had worked on uh, the accelerated timeline of uh, bringing this startup rescue instrument to life um, was also and is currently implementing uh, a project since July um, to to be able to link the, um, the two institutions together. Um, but why is that interesting? And why did I just even mention that when we talked about um, internationalization and we talked about policy? Um, well, um, be, because in, in essence, uh, 
the companies that are supported from EIC have been selected for their very uh, risky approach and their ability to uh, really provide a service to, you know, as a product or as a service to patients. Um, but to de-risk that funding, what we can do at EIT Health, for instance, is to connect them to our experts locally. But often that's not enough. We have to, um, like some of the startups that we spoke with that have commended our mentoring and coaching network, have said, you might have to find that one expert that is that um, absolute um that absolute leading researcher in molecular uh, glue in order to be able to make the advances. Um, and that researcher might not be sitting in Munich, Germany. That researcher might be sitting in uh, uh, Wuch, Poland or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think the, the, the ability for these two institutions to work together and to align at a um, at an operational level um, can really do a lot for the companies and build both of the portfolios so that we can fill in the gaps of medical need that we've already identified. Thank you, Joy. That was a that was a super important example about how. Um, politics already, or not only politics, but also the commission um, joined, joined forces. And um, also because, because we talked about pandemics, uh, reflecting how that, how that all started. I remember that after our annual summit uh, 2019 in Paris with more than 1000 uh, participants from our partnership, um, Jan Philipp and I, our CEO and I, um, we have been fully exhausted after these couple of days at the summit. And then uh, we took, we entered the plane and flew to Brussels to, to visit uh, Jean-David Malo, um, the, the director of EIC um, or um, um, the, the EISME um, as, as, it's, as it's called now. So we, uh, we flew to him and explained why there is such a strong overlap between EIT Health and EIC. So there's a couple of companies, actually 25% back then, that have been supported by EIT Health and by EIC together. And uh, there was not much communication uh, between and, and, and not any alignment between those two European institutions. So we hardly could explain anyone why there is no collaboration, even if you are funded both um, by, the, by the same uh, taxpayers' money from European citizens. And uh, we identified a couple of, of good items that we wanted to work on, and then it still took um, more than more than half a year until we until we got into concrete actions and steps. Um, and due to the pandemics, of course, it didn't get get easier um, at least at the first place because everyone was distracted by all kinds of other things and, and fires that he that he had to solve. But then um, it also showed up that um, it's much better if you don't have to fly uh, to Brussels for a two hours meeting, but if you can just uh, start start an online meeting to have a 30 minutes conversation, but that in a pretty regular pace. Um, so that, that helped a lot and, um, since then. We have a very regular exchange uh, with representatives from EIC and uh, indeed choice team. They did not even have time to recover a bit after the rescue instrument implementation um, when they when they already had to start um, to to outline um, the concrete proposal for the EIC EIT collaboration. Um, but in the end, it was it was rated excellent in all um, all categories by the external evaluators that that also of course had to evaluate that proposal. <clears throat> 
And um, now we are looking forward to the to the outcome of that. It will be super important. And to um, to go from EIC to another European institution, uh, EIF, the European Investment Fund, um, that has started a bit earlier. The collaboration between EIT Health and um, the European Investment Fund. But in the end, um, the collaboration piece that we are doing there is also um, super strong and, and super heavy. In the end, we talk about uh, 2 billion euro investment uh, that we want to move into the, um, into the healthcare innovation um, ecosystem driven by startups. And a large percentage of that also will go into digital health. So the idea is that we bring together corporate investors from our EIT Health Partnership. And in fact, um, there is also a lot of pharma corporates uh, that are interested in that. Not only, we also see interest from Google Alphabet um, and their European representation and, and several others, but um, certainly a strong pharma interest, and private VCs. So in the end, um, EIF always said, we would like to change the fact that many European corporates rather invest or even acquire startups and scale-ups from overseas uh, rather than focusing on European companies. And um, EIF is, of course, uh, bound to financial outcome and financial returns. So they, they cannot just co-invest alongside strategic investors like corporates. Um, that is just not allowed and not legal. So therefore, we created a model where uh, we link our corporate investors, strategic investors, to um, to qualified private VCs. The private VC always has a financial interest that's in their nature. Therefore, EAF can um, co-invest alongside them. And um, therefore, we can bring in the, the corporate investors into that uh, triangle. And the commission unlocked uh, 150 million euro in total in two tranches. Uh, 75 million euro are already committed, um, have been committed last year at the Health Tech Innovation Days. Um, that was opened by President Macron and Thierry Breton was, was the one bringing that message that the 75 million euro are, are uh, unlocked and another 75 million euro will be unlocked um, as soon as we bring sufficient corporate investors. And um, through um, that EU funding, then there is also a commitment from all the corporates that come in, um, plus the leverage with um, the sustainable sustainable development umbrella fund of the European Commission, managed by the European Investment Fund and the private investments from the v, uh, from the private VCs, we will manage um, a leverage of two billion euro in total through that so-called venture center of excellence. So it started. If any VC is listening to that podcast uh, who is interested in that, we certainly will put a link on that um, at at the website. So um, certainly another very, very strong European initiative um, that has been started and also that shows uh, the big trust in the collaboration of our institution. There are two, two points that I would like to connect to tackle one last topic in this podcast. Uh, it's, it's one part is the team building. I completely agree to what you said, Joy, that uh, startups should bring the best team together, no matter where the people are. So it doesn't matter if this is an Austrian uh, woman or man, or if the best person sits in China or in the United States or in the UK, um, bringing the best execution team together to uh, move the company forward to the great vision the company, of course, has uh, is key to success. But it all boils down to the availability of capital on the market and disconnects to what you said, Kurt. Um, Europe and also in 
the talk with you, I mean, Europe uh, has really great public funding instruments, but I cannot 100% fund a company with public funds only. So I also need private funds. And I come from a time of scarcity. So uh, 2008, for example, fundraising uh, um, in the midst of a financial crisis was next to impossible. Um, and also in the years uh, until 2019, as I also said before, I still had the, um, let's say, the perception of the European market that there's a scarcity of capital. Um, is this picture still true? Uh, or did I miss something in the last two years? Uh, how do you see the availability of uh, private funding? So private equity, venture capital, angel funding, uh, corporate funding for private deep tech startup companies. Uh, do we need more capital? Is there still an opportunity on the market or are we overfinanced already? It's, let, me, let me start on that. Um, couple of examples. What, the first example is um, the, the German uh, newspaper Handelsblatt has, has just a month ago or so published an infographics that showed um, the top investors for digital health companies. And they looked into the top 100 German digital health companies and looked uh, who is the investors. And then you could see that um, 30 of those, more than 30 of those companies had been invested by uh, Hightech Gründerfonds, which is partially private, but mainly public. Investor number two is already EIT Health uh, with nine companies. And then you have to go down further the line to, to find some, some private investors. Um, so that certainly shows the how, how strong maybe the public investments are, but also the need to get more private investments in that in that sector. So that is that is certainly true, and that is that is a clear picture. So I don't want to miss the public funding, but I think we, we certainly need more more private funding. The second topic is um, I think there is a lot of money in the market right now because what should you do with your with your money? Um, the only the only reasonable thing you can do is invest into startups. There's hardly hardly anything else. And uh, by the way, we also see that that um, um, some of our our former team members now moved into into VCs uh, because there have been so many new VCs built up um, with all kind of of uh, special focus. So I think there there is some movement, um, and um, the, the the money that is available will be invested. Nevertheless, especially in the digital health market, it is an issue if you don't have a clear reimbursement pathway. So for an investor, it's always important to see how will that company make revenue. And as we are not in a consumer market, we just address um, potential buyers in a, in, a, in a B2C market. Um, here it is totally different. So it's, it's, it's super heavy regulated and you, you have to, to outline your reimbursement schemes. Therefore, I think that will also get much better as soon as we have clear reimbursement pathways and Germany with its eager approach. So the, the digital health applications um, that can be now reimbursed. Um, we have, um, I think now um, since, since August 2021, we have 19 DIGA companies that are listed and five of them even permanently. The other 14 have still 12 months time to, to demonstrate and show their, show their evidence. Uh, that I think will trigger lots more of investments in in digital health. So that's that's clearly on the rise. But um, you're not not missing out anything if you if you say there is still some potential to get more investments into the digital health area. Joy, how do you perceive uh, the investment market in Europe? 
Well, um, I, I would also say there is still room for <laughs> improval. Um, um, and that's exactly why, you know, we have initiatives such as the Venture Center of Excellence to increase um, the amount that we can have in uh, rounds in, within Europe. Um, I mean, of course, um, VC investment um, since 2016 has increased and has almost doubled. Um, however, um, that, you know, the, the number of uh, companies active in the market also has, and uh, the entire space of, of digital health has, has grown. Um, we, we already mentioned that in the beginning. Um, and you see that there's a need for um, the, the companies that were already supported in the 2016-2017 rounds um, to receive their top-up um, for their later stage financing. Um, but beyond the fact that the rounds are are needing to increase or that the money needs to be made available. Um, I think the necessity to, in, to not only think about the reimbursement pathways, but also um, to re-verify how we would like uh, patients to participate in that. Um, patients uh, aren't really in, incentivized to participate and uh, in, in investors are supporting the um, you know, reimbursement and regulatory market. They're not interacting with the consumers or the customers per se. Um, those that benefit the patients are not the ones that are paying. Uh, the co-payments are quite low for, for, uh, for a patient or consumer. And uh, when you don't have skin in the game, of course, uh, you, you um, make different choices. Um, and so, so I think the, the challenge will be um, how can we incentivize uh, in investors, how can we ensure that these regulatory and reimbursement schemes also contain um, voices from patient advocates, from patient advocate groups, from patients themselves, um, in, in order to uh, start a conversation about how can, how can we change these uh, payment models as well. Um, so it's not only about the money, of course. Maybe, maybe two, two things to add that, that just came to my mind. One thing is, um, I think, um, besides the reimbursement um, schemes through the DIGAS, uh, the, the German Ministry of Health also did something very right. Um, they created the Health Innovation Hub. Uh, that's, a, that's a very strong think tank of, um, of smart people, uh, previous entrepreneurs and, entrepreneurs and experts um, that try to to also bring other stakeholders into that digital health market. Um, so for example, um, the payers themselves. Um, so there is now a clause um, in the in the legal framework that allows them to invest into companies to a very limited amount, but to invest into new digital health startups themselves. Um, and uh, the, the team of the Health Innovation Hub now really tries also to motivate the payers to do so. So they even tried to bring them, for example, into our venture center of excellence in order to get um, to get access to, to great European um, digital health startups. So that is that is a great, um, great outcome that I that I like very much. Um, the second thing, um, what also we do ourselves um, is, of course, we, we uh, present our startups as at as many events as possible. So we um, we, we present them um, with an investor pitch 
um, at, at all kind of events in order events in order to identify potential customers, but also potential investors. And as such, I'd like to just highlight a couple of events uh, that we are preparing right now. There is the SUCS Forum that takes place uh, two times a year and where EIT Health is always a strong partner. There is the eHealth Investment Forum um, taking place in Spain. There is the Innovation Day uh, happening in September and focusing on September 21st on digital health in Erlangen, which is organized by uh, the German newspaper or magazine Wirtschaftswoche uh, together uh, with Jens Spahn, the German health minister and, and many others. Um, there is a permanent representation of EIT Health startups at um, the startup conference four years from now um, at the, at the World Congress. And EIT um, Health is also presenting startups at the MedTech Live. Uh, we always have a, a startup pitch contest at the MedTech Live that is happening in spring um, in Nuremberg so far virtually, but next year also hybrid in a hybrid version uh, in Nuremberg. And last but not least, um, there's of course also our EIT Health Catapult business plan competition uh, with the three categories. So we have a semi-final in biotech, semi-final in medtech, and a semi-final in digital health. Um, that will happen this year in December. And um, the winners of the semifinals will be presented at our summit um, that will happen next year um, in May, I think, in, in Stockholm, uh, where we also will allow our startups to pitch. So I think it's super important to, to not only talk about those startups, but also really present them either physically or at least in an online format to investors and uh, to potential collaboration partners. Um, ideally, a mix of both. Uh, smart money is, of course, always the best um, if you have smart investors that also can not only financially, but also with their expertise contribute to the growth of the company. That is our desired outcome. One final question I would like to ask you both. Um, so there are these events where people can connect with AT Health, of course. Uh, but What if someone listens to this podcast and wants to get in touch with you directly with AT Health? What's the best way for startups, corporate partners, and VCs to connect with AT? Um, I think, of course, um, the individuals that are listening can reach out to us. Um, but the great asset that we have at EIT Health is that uh, we have um, offices throughout Europe. And uh, therefore, we also have um, business creation uh, leads and business creation managers um, that are supporting companies within these regional hubs. And uh, these are the go-tos to ask about the new programs that are, um, that are launching, um, some of which have a deadline um, in mid-September, uh, such as Bridgehead. Um, but uh, these individuals are really the experts connecting the local ecosystem uh, together. And um, you can find them on our webpage at the Help for Applicants page. Um, so our business creation um, experts will, will definitely be able to uh, connect you um, and support on the startup journey. I think that's more the startup focused side um, and maybe Kurt can, can give his insights on the VC aspect. Exactly. Um, so Troy rightly outlines, uh, we have all our uh, regional teams in our regional offices um, that, that take care of the startups. 
Uh, with the investors, it's it's similar. Um, also, the investors are usually taken care of by the regional teams. But um, please feel inf invited and feel free to to get in touch with uh, join myself directly if you would like to assess a bit more intensively which program uh, might be the most relevant for you, and then we would connect you to the to the relevant people um, either in the regional hubs or in the programs, uh, whatever is is most important or suits you best. But very much looking forward to get in touch. Joy Kurt, thank you very much for giving great insights into the European, um, let's say, health tech uh, ecosystem. Please keep up your great work uh, and keep helping, evolving and developing the ecosystem further. Thank you very much for this discussion. Thank you, Christian. Thanks, Joy. Thank you, Christian. Have fun. a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.